it'll be good. <coughs> so we have Parshas Pinchas, which of course begins in a sense in the middle, that is to say, in the end of Parshas Balak, we have what's known as Maase Zimri, the act of Zimri, and then we have a week's break, and then finally we, we discover the reward for Pinchas. <clears throat> there is a catchphrase in the Gemara for people who do not act appropriately, but require or demand just reward. Zimri Pinchas. They act like Zimri, but they like Sachar like Pinchas. <clears throat> there was actually, uh, it is told, that in the Shul in Frankfurt, in the time of the Hafla, so the Chazan was not exactly behaviorally uh, up to par, but he felt he was a good Chazan and he demanded that his wages be no less than those of the Rav. The Rav himself, the Hafla, of Pinchas Alevi Horowitz, and one of the Gaboyim objected and said, Osama Sezimri, all he does is he, is he hums, Osama Sezimri. But he wants his salary to be like Rupinchas Horowitz Haflor. Either way, <clears throat> what is the Sachar Pinchas? So we read the Psukim at uh, the beginning of the Parsha, Perik Hafei, Posagid Aleph, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Akohen. So Pinchas, Heshivas <coughs> Hamasi, he stayed my anger, returned my anger, my wrath, me Albane Yisrael. Etc. and so forth. Pasukud beis lachain emor. Therefore, say to him. That is to say, Moshe is to say to Pinchas, "Hinenino seinlo esbrisi shalom." I will give him uh, a covenant of peace, whatever a covenant of peace means. Brisi shalom, and also his descendants will be kohanim. Bris kohunas olam. These are the two areas of the sachar of Pinchas. Brisi shalom, covenant of peace and a covenant of everlasting uh, priesthood. <coughs> and there is a comment in the Medrash, which has itself drawn much comment by the commentators. And that is, says the Medrash, Bedinhu sheyito sacharo. Bedinhu, it is just, it is fair, sheyito sacharo, that Pinchas should receive his reward. And understandably, this medrash is somewhat perplexing. After all, as far as we know, uh, whoever does a good deed, it's fitting that they receive their reward. How is Pinchas unique or, or singled out for special mention <coughs> that his reward, it is fitting that he receives this reward? <coughs> there is a classic drusha of the Beis Halevi. The Beis Halevi, we have 18 drushas from him. <clears throat> and in the first drasha, which apparently was the first drasha he ever gave as a rav, when he first came to Slutsk, having retired from being Rosh Hashiva of Volozhin, and he, in the course of that drasha, he discusses this medrash, Bedin Hu Sacharo. And the Beis Halevi draws our attention to something that we say every day in the morning, straight after Birchas <coughs> We have a list of things a person benefits from the fruits of those actions in this world while the principle remains for him in Olam Haba etc. and so forth. 
What's interesting is, <coughs> says Beis Halevi, if you look at uh, this list of, of special mitzvahs, so to speak, and the Gemara itself discusses this mission. It's the Gemara in Maseches Kiddushin on Daf Mem. And the Gemara asks, how, what, what's so special about these mitzvahs that Adam Ochel Perusehem the Olam Hazeh? We'll note that most of those mitzvahs, not all, but most of them are in the realm of Ben Adam Lachavero. You have Achdasas Orchim, Gemilas Chasadim, and Levias Hames, and Bikucholim. And it seems. <coughs> that there is a certain quality of mitzvahs in the realm of ben Adam lechaveiro that a person enjoys, let's call it, the fringe benefits of those mitzvahs already in this world. Of course, the actual sahar itself is literally out of this world. But Perusehem, he enjoys in this world. What's the key? What determines whether a person benefits from Perusehem ba'olamazeh? <coughs> and the Gemara cites a pasuk in Yeshaya, which states, Imru tzadik kitov. Say to the tzadik who is good, Kifrim ma'alalehem yochelu. For they shall eat of the goods of their deeds. Imru tzadik kitov. Say to the tzadik who is good, Kifrim ma'alalehem yochelu. They will eat from the fruit of their deeds. And the Gemara asks an interesting question. Say to the tzadik who is good, Is there such a thing as a tzadik who is not good? If he's not good, he's not a tzaddik. Why do we need to qualify? Tzaddik ki tov. If he's not tov, why is he a tzaddik? But the Gemara explains that specifically, the term tzaddik here relates to piety ben odom lamokom, between man and God, and ki tov means that he also does good for people ben odom lachaveiro. And that's why the Gemara says, if he's just quote unquote a tzaddik, meaning he spends most or all of his time bin Adam Lamakom, so we don't say pre Malalehem Yochelu that he'll eat the fruits of his deeds because his deeds don't generate fruits. That's the key. A person whose own deeds generate fruits in this world, that is to say, other people benefit directly from his deeds, acts of kindness, bin Adam Lachaveiro. If his acts generate kindness, generate payros, then he, it's mida keneged mida. He can enjoy the peiros in this world. His acts generate peiros in this world. He can enjoy the peiros in this world. So if he's tzaddik kitov, pre malalehem yochelu. And that is what is behind uh, so many of those on the list of Adam Ochel peiroseem ba'olam hazeh. So, what does this have to do with Pinchas? When we consider the act of Pinchas, we normally focus on the area that is bin Adam Lamakum, as if to say, what did Pinchas do? He acted zealously on Hashem's behalf, and certainly the immediate recipient of his action, or recipients, Zimri and Cosby, well, they, they, got, uh, they got killed. As they say today, uh, they got cancelled. So, in terms of peros in this world, <clears throat> we don't find it. But the truth is, that's only the act itself. But what are the effects of the act? What does the Pasuk in our Parsha focuses on the effects, on the, on the 
broader benefits. Heshivas Hamasi says Pasikud Aleph, me Albane Yisrael. He returned my anger. Bikanoas When he was acting zealous. The focus is not to identify his act as one of, of zealousness, but what is the result of his act? He returned my anger, Velochilisi Esbene Yisrael Bikinosi. And therefore, I did not destroy the, the Bnei Yisrael. We don't know how many more beyond these 24,000 would have been destroyed were it not for Pinchas' act. And therefore, <coughs> so the Medrash is pointing out, don't lose sight of the enormous benefit. There were people there who owed their lives to Pinchas having acted in the way that he did. As such, his action certainly qualifies as one that generated payros, and that is why he's deserving of reward in this world. Lachain emor. Therefore say to him, says the Pasuk, upon which the Medrash comments, Bedinhu sheyital sechara. It is just and fitting that he receive his reward in this world because his ward generate his acts generated payros. He deserves to 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 therefore also benefit from the payros in the form of bris shalom and bris kahunas olam. So that is a classic um, explanation of the Beis Halevi. And again, it lays open for us a major principle in terms of how to know which acts a person can ex- expect to enjoy the payrus in this world. If his acts make payrus, he gets payrus. If we move a little bit deeper into the parsha towards the count, and of course the count is primarily numbers, but not all. And in fact, I'd like to uh, devote some time to try and look closely at a section which seems to depart from the merely or purely numerical manner of these subjects. And that is if we start to, if we have a look at Posuk Tess, Perik Kafvav Posuk Tess, we're in the count. And we start with Reuven, Reuven is the oldest, and one of Reuven's descendants was Eliav. And now, Pasuk Tes reads, Perakavav Pasuk Tes, Eliav. The sons of Eliav were Nemuel, Dasan, Va'aviram. Now, of course, no sooner do we hear the words Dasan and Aviram, and that we're already triggered, because we know them quite well. But the Pasuk continues, and actually digresses, seemingly, who Dasan Va'aviram? That is the very same Dasan Va'aviram, Kuriye Ha'eda, notables of the community, Asher Hitsu Al Moshe Va'al Aharon Ba'adas Korach. <coughs> they ignited Machlokas against Moshe and Aaron, Ba'adas Korach, together with Korach, Ba'atsosam Al Hashem, when they ignited Machlokas against Hashem. Before moving further, it's a very interesting construction of this Pasuk, because though if, we, if we look again, we see that Dasan and Aviram are described as having started a Machlokas with Moshe and Aaron, together with Adas Korach, who had a Machlokas with Hashem. And this really, in retrospect, compartmentalizes or categorizes so clearly the difference between Dasan and Aviram on the one hand, and Korach's assembly on the other. Dasan and Aviram have no interest in what those 250 men want. Those 250 men want the Avodah. They are upset. And who are they upset with? If one could say, and the Pasuk says, they're upset with Hashem. Why did you uh, sideline us from the Avodah? 
the 250 men's machlokas is with Hashem. Dasan and Avirim have no quarrel with Hashem, which is probably the nicest thing you can say about them. But what that means to say is they, they don't care that they don't have the Avodah. They're not interested in the Avodah. They get involved in machlokas because there's a machlokas there. And, and they get a chance to do their favorite thing, which is to have machlokas with Moshe and Aaron. And you see it so clearly in this Pasuk. It's laid out, these two streams. Dasan and Aviram have a machlokas with Moshe and Aaron. Adas Korach has a machlokas with Hashem. Interestingly and enigmatically, Korach himself is missing. Meaning, and it remains something of a mystery. To whom did Korach, with whom did Korach have more in common? Was he more like Dasan and Aviram? as a run-in with Moshe and Aaron, per se, was he more like the 250 men? That remains a bit of an open question. But either way, this is, in a sense, the Pasuk's recap of Dasan and Aviram. So in case you didn't remember who Dasan and Aviram were, you get a Pasuk's worth of recap. The problem is, why is the Pasuk giving me a recap? Are, are, are we to expect that Parshas Korach, which we read uh, only three weeks ago, we don't know who Dostan and Aviram are. And we, therefore we need to go over the whole story again, just in case. I think Parshas Korach, for better or for worse, actually for worse, is one of the more memorable uh, episodes in uh, Chumash Bamid. But I don't think anyone hears Dostan and Aviram and say, well, remind me again what, what happened to them. You don't need to be reminded. And especially just for, for purposes of comparison, there are two other people on this list who died earlier. They are Er and Onan, the two sons of Yehuda. If you cast your mind back to Parshas Vayeshev, Er and Onan, they, they died early. It's really Zerach and, and Peretz who, who maintain. Look at Pasuk Yotes. It makes short shrift of the whole thing. It's over before you know it. Pasuk Yotes. B'nei Yehuda Erva Onan. Yehuda's sons were Aaron, Vayamas Erva Onan Be'eretz Canaan. And they died in Eretz Canaan. And that's it. And we move on. So if you want to know where they're missing, because they went missing. How did they go missing? I think I should probably need more of a reminder of what happened in Parshas Vayeshev, which is four Chumashim ago, than I would need in Parshas Karach three Parshas ago. So how can we get more of an elaboration for Dasan and Aviram and zero elaboration for Er and Onan? Let's keep going in the Torah's digression, so to speak. Pasuk Yud. The earth opened its mouth. It, buried, it, it swallowed them. And Korach, when the assembly died. When the fire consumed those 250 men. What is the meaning of those two words? Rashi comments. Laos ulezikaron. Enes, we translate off normally as a miracle, but enes is a banner or a sign. Laos ulezikaron. They were as a sign that no one else should contest the kahuna. That's what Rashi says. The problem is, what's the sign? Where's the sign? Vayiyulenes. At that point, there was a sign or a banner that, that should be noticeable. How can we notice it? We don't know what it is. Do we know what it is? The Pasuk doesn't specify. And finally, 
And most unusually, Pasuk Yud Aleph, Uvne Korach Lo Mesu. And Korach's sons didn't die. And that is the, the end of our digression. What's the background to this idea that Korach's sons didn't die? As we know, uh, Chazal tell us, there's a number of accounts, but the substance is that Korach's sons were originally loyal to Korach. They were originally with him uh, in his machlokas. However, when things began to unravel and they saw the error of their ways, and it seems that this happened even as the earth was, was opening it up, and Bnei Korach says, this is, this is a, a, a mistake. We, we, we retract. And they were saved, which tells us two amazing things. Number one, the power of tshuva, that even at that late stage, a genuine expression of regret was accepted. But more bafflingly, we discover that Korach and the others, they did not express any regret even at that time, because their sons did, and they were saved. But Korach went down, and so did Dasa and Navir in the 250. There was no turning back. Even, at that, even as the ground opens up uh, underneath them. And that itself is something to, to reckon with. <coughs> Either way, B'nai Korach, <coughs> that, is how they, that's it, that is how they were saved. What is so uh, interesting about this Pasekut Aleph? This is meant to be a recap, for whatever reason, of events in Parshas Korach. But this element of Korach's sons is not even mentioned in Parshas Korach. And this is now already way in excess of, of, of even what we would call a recap. Because you can't recap for something which you never knew in the first place. We are discovering information about the story of Korach that wasn't even given in Parshas Korach only now. And how is this relevant to Parshas Pinchas? And we're still in the tribe of Reuven. It's like we can't help ourselves but to talk about the sons of, of Le- The sons of, of Korach are Leviim. So if, so if you want to get involved in, in, in Korach, so, so wait, we're going to get to Levi. It's going to be in Shlishi. The Kolzeh Omer Darsheni. All of this, without doubt, requires our close attention. All we've done is read the Psukim, but we, we made sure to stop and, and <coughs> take note of what appeared to be the difficulties. And who will guide us here? None other than Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And he presents an, an, an approach to these psukim. Uh, and I think by the time he's finished, I wonder if there's even another way to, to, to learn the psukim. But let, let's see what he says. He begins, and of course, one of his uh, areas of expertise was his, was his fluency in Tanakh, and to be able to, to glean the, 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 the concepts and the themes there, you find something interesting. And that is that uh, if, we, if we should ever wonder what makes up a unit as far as the Jewish army is concerned, how many are in, in a unit? Does, does the Torah say? doesn't seem to say. But we can find out. And the way we can do that is first he refers us to Shmuel Aleph, Perik Ches. What happens there? The people want a king, and Shmuel felt that it was inappropriate the way they were asking for a king, and he tells them exactly what to expect if they should appoint a king. It's not going to be necessarily as rosy as they 
as they feel. And one of the things that he says is that if you appoint a king, he's going to set up an army and he can take your children for his army. Are you prepared for that? And what is the way that he expresses this? He says, V'lasumlo sarei alafim v'sarei chamishim. The king's army will have officers of a thousand and officers of fifty. And what does that tell us? It tells us here the makeup of the army is that the brigade or the, the larger, the broader troop is groups of a thousand, and then the particular units are of fifty. Sarei alafim, sarei chamishim. Similarly, in Sefer Malachim Beis, where Eliyahu has uh, gone missing, but they, will, but, but they wish to speak to Eliyahu, the king Achazia wants to find him. So uh, he finally catches up with him and he sends a group of soldiers to confront him. And the, the, the expression of the Pasuk is, this is in Malachim Beis, Perek Aleph, Vayishlach Elav, Sar Chamishim V'chamishav. He sent with him an officer over 50 and his, men, and his group of 50 men. And what does this teach us? It teaches us from these two places that the unit is of 50 for the army. The larger unit, the larger group is 1,000, the smaller unit is 50. Interestingly, there is one case, and for the sake of thoroughness, and it's actually in next week's Parsha, we have to mention it, at least parenthetically. There is one case where we seem to have military units, not of 50, but of 100. How so? Because in next week's Parsha, when we have the war against Midian, in Perik Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Yudalit, when Moshe gets upset with the officers, the Pasuk says, Vayiktsof Moshe al pikudei hachayl. He gets angry at the officers, Sarei Halafim Visarei Hameos. The officers of a thousand, which we're familiar with, that's the big group, Visarei Hameos, and officers of a hundred. Now that would seem to challenge what we're saying. We're saying that when it comes to the army, the groups are thousands and fifties. Sarei Hamishim. <clears throat> Where does Sarei Meos come from? However, says Rabbi Yaakov, if the more you understand the nature of next week's war, with Midian, the more you'll come to understand why the groups were not 50, but of 100. How so? Because there is an established group of 100 also in Torah. Not for military purposes, but for holy purposes. Where do we find this? Says Rabbi Kamenetsky, Melachim Beis Perig Aleph. What's happening there? You have the young king, Yoash, and his life is in danger. People are trying to kill him. I think his aunt is trying to kill him. <coughs> and so you have the, the Kohen Godel, Yehoyada, and he, get, he finds Yoash, and he wants to store him away, to secret him away in the Beis HaMikdash. And the Pasuk says that Shalach Yehoyada vayikach esare hameos. When he convenes his meeting of the uh, notables among the Kohanim, they're sorry Hameos, they're officers over a hundred, because for matters of Kedusha, the groups are a hundred. Okay, how does that help us in our war with Midian? Says Yaakov, because we need to appreciate the war against Midian was not like any other war that we were then set to Wage. All of the other wars were wars of conquest for the land of Israel, which is a mitzvah, and it's our destiny, and it's what we need to do. But that has the grouping of 50, because that is a standard military 
exercise. The war against Midian is for none of those reasons. It has nothing to do with conquering the land of Israel. It is ex expressed and presented by Moshe himself as to exact the vengeance of Hashem for them having caused the Jewish people to sin. So the cause for war, the cause is Belus here, is not a classic military strategic target or, or objective. It's specifically to, to respond to the breach of Kedusha. And that is why, says Rebjakov Kamenetsky, people were organized in groups of 100. This is a matter of Kedusha. And he says, I can prove it to you, certainly from Rashi. Because if you look in next week's Parsha, in the beginning, when they mobilized to go to war, it says they sent each tribe sent a thousand men. Lekol shivtei Yisrael, says Rashi, even the tribe of Levi sent a thousand men. Now we know Levi never goes to war. They never go to war. But why? Because they have no inheritance of the land of Israel and it's not their area. So what are the Levim going to war? Why are they part of the, of the army here? Because this war was not for the land of Israel. This war was to, to reassert and, uh, the matters of Kedusha. And therefore, in whose domain does Kedusha rest, if not Levim? So Levim sent a thousand men also. And that is why they were here in groups in this particular war. Not groups of 50, but groups of 100. Now, how does this help us? This issue of groups of 50. You'll find, says Rabyakov, that all of the numbers of all of the tribes, both in Parshas Pinchas, which is our Parsha, and also Parshas Bamidbar at the beginning of Chumash Bamidbar, it's the Chumash of the countings, beginning and end, all of the tribes end, in a sense, rounded off either to 100 or to 50. And that's an interesting question just to ask uh, about a Batisha, Shaila. <laughs> How is it that they all end up with a rounded off to 100 or to 50? Are we to understand that there was no tribe that had uh, ended with 58 or 72 or 67 or so on and so forth? How is it that it, it's, it seems very uh, well arranged? Well, what are we to make of this? Did people go missing? It, it was mamish like that? Says Abyakov, the more you understand that a primary reason for the counting was those who went out in the army, so therefore they were counted as units. And there is no unit of less than 50, which means that even if the, a particular tribe may have had uh, ended their thousands with a few hundreds and then the 35 but you're not going to hear from those 35 because there's no such unit and therefore it will always be 50. And what about the surplus? They will then be distributed one or two per unit so that you'll have a few units that have 51 or 52 or 53, whatever it is. That is the simple meaning behind all of these numbers ending in 100 or 50 because they're units of, of 50 and therefore uh, they get rounded out that way. Very nice. There's just one problem. There is one tribe that is exceptional to this rule. And that is the tribe of Reuven.
And the more we appreciate the background to what Rabbi Yaakov said, the more we will be taken by what we see here. Because where do we find uh, Reuven? Pasuk Zion. Perak Kafvav, Pasuk Zion. And we should, be, we should brace ourselves for a, a number shock. These are the families of Reuven. You know what their uh, tally was. 43,000. And this now should uh, give us cause for concern. Because as we know, uh, there is no such thing as ending with 30. You can't. It's either 50 or 100. So what are we to make of this first tribe ending with this almost like a, a, a truncated number? What's behind that? How come it wasn't rounded off? What's the answer? The answer, says the Torah, is that you need to know a thing or two about Reuven. Specifically about two of their number called Dasan and Aviram who were participating, prime protagonists, in a major machlokas, and then they got wiped out. And how does the Pasuk conclude? Vayihiyu lenes. And they were as a sign. Rashi says, laos ulezikaron, a sign and a remembrance. And our question is, why are you digressing about Dustin and Aviram here? I think we, we remember the story. Why is it relevant here? It's relevant here because you need to remember what Dustin and Aviram did to understand why the number of Reuven is the way that it is. It's about the numbers. Why? Because when they went missing, there was a sign of remembrance. What is that sign? Pasig doesn't seem to say. says Yaakov, it's right in front of us. It's the fact that their numbers ended in 30. That means that unlike every other unit in the Jewish army, <coughs> which, was, which was of standard number of 50, you had one of 30. And they were not distributed. It was kept that way as a deficient unit in order to, to express the idea that what? People are missing. That's the remembrance. And that's why we digress back to, to Dustin and Aviram here in order to understand of all of the tribes how come this one ended not with 100, not with 50, but with 30. So far, so good. <clears throat> There's just one problem. And that is, if that's true, if participation in Korach's Machlokas results in deficient numbers or a, a unit that is noticeably has truncated and has people missing. So what, what can we expect from the tribe of Levi? After all, Dasan and Aviron were participants, but the instigator of the whole Machlokas is Korach. One can only begin to imagine what type of uh, number we're going to end up with Levi. It's going to be probably an odd number, maybe even a prime number, but it's, it's going to be something that's very, very noticeable. And what do we find? Pasuk says in Shlishi that the subtotal of the tribe of Levi was uh, so a moment Pasuk Samach Beis of Perik Gavav Vayipu 
What was their tally of Levi? Shlosha ve'esrim elef. 23,000. Wow. 23,000 is a round number. It's a very round number. And this seems to be the complete opposite of what we're saying. It seems lopsided. Members of Reuven who got involved, they ended up with a unit of 30, which is very disjointed. Levi, from where Korach hailed, is 23,000. Whatever happened to the Os and the Zikaron? Why is there no banner? Why is there no sign for Shevet Levi? And this is what the final posse in this section comes to tell us. Uvne Korach lo mesu. Korach's sons didn't die. And what is that a reference to? To the fact that as much as they were originally involved in Korach's machlokas, they did an about turn, they did shuva. And, and you need to know that. And you need to know it here. Because this is the question that will surface as soon as we've said how B'nai Reuven have numbers missing, you will immediately wonder, well then what about B'nai Levi? And therefore the answer comes straight away. B'nai Korach Lomesu. And therefore, in deference to the um, gesture of B'nai Korach, the Pasuk does not leave any remembrance. If you'd look at the tally for Levi, you'd never know that a Levi was involved. You'd never know that Korach was the instigator because that is the respect that the Torah accords to B'nai Levi as a result, pardon me, to B'nai Korach in recognition of the act of tshuva that they did. That is Amek Pshuto Shal Mikra. That is the deep understanding of the, sim- of the, the, on the simple direct meaning of these psukim, psukim which are, which are almost uh, impossible to understand uh, until you, we uh, under- accept this uh, approach of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and then everything is laid open. I will mention also a fascinating thing just to see how this idea follows through. B'nai Korach, I mean, B'nai Korach themselves went on to uh, have illustrious careers. They are co-authors of some of the chapters of, of Tehillim. L'mnatzech l'v'nei Korach. And um, they're even called Shoshanim, in fact. L'mnatzech l'v'nei Korach. And what do we have to learn from them? Well, it should suffice to mention here that just before we blow the shofar, seven times we recite a chapter that was authored by B'nai Korach. Lamnatzech, L'mnei Korach, Mizmor, as we know, Kolamim, Hariuchaf, etc. and so forth, seven times. It's amazing. The ones who usher us in to the sound of the shofar are Korach's sons. Why? Because the time when we hear the shofar is a time when we're called to follow their example. As we, 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 we ourselves are going in whatever way that we're going, it's not an easy thing for a person to, to, to rethink what they're doing and to, to perhaps abruptly change something or to, to realize in a very uh, stark way that there are certain things that need uh, uh, rectification and, and, and so on and so forth. And therefore, with our ushers, our ushers into to the, to, to the hearing of the shofar are the original people who did that. 
B'nai Karach. And, and, and it's, it's an amazing thing to consider in that way. But how do we see this uh, follow on later in the Chumash? In Chumash Devarim, in Parshas Ekev, <coughs> Perak Yud Aleph. So Moshe is recapping and is going over various mishaps and uh, difficult uh, episodes and uh, acts of uh, times of punishment, etc. Perak Ekev really needs to be studied carefully. Of course, it doesn't have such good muzzle, at least for us, it always is in the uh, summer break. But Perak Yud Aleph Posuk Vav. Moshe is, is um, detailing some of the episodes which met with divine retribution. Pasuk Vav of Perig Yud Aleph. Va'asher Asa, and what Hashem did, Ledosan va'aviram b'nei Eliyav ben Reuven. And remember what Hashem did to Dosan and Aviram, who we are now very familiar with. Asher Potza Sahar, it's piha, that the land opened its mouth, it, it, uh, it, it swallowed them and all of their property, etc. Remember all of that. What is so amazing about that Pasuk in Parshas Ekev is that Moshe is recalling to the Jewish people the episode of Korach. And he makes no mention of Korach. If you only ever had information about that episode from this retrospective Pasuk in, in Parshas Ekev, you'd never know there was a person called Korach. You'd never know what he did. If someone said to you, who were the, the prime people involved, the antagonists involved at the time, you say, oh, it's, it's, it's explicitly in the Pasuk, Dosan and Aviram. They were participants, but they weren't the instigators. They weren't the one who, who brought the whole thing together. They weren't the leaders. The leader was Korach. And he is absolutely stricken from the record here. Why? Because among the Jewish people that Moshe is addressing about that episode are Korach's sons. They did tshuva. And out of respect for them, that episode is, is for, as, for, until further notice, called the episode of Dustin and Avira. You see the, the, the respect and the sensitivity and the recognition that is given to them. That the, that the whole thing is reframed. If you remember the story, you'll know that it's Korah. You're not going to hear a word about it from Moshe. Not when Korah's children, children are there. Really an unbelievable thing. So uh, it, it's certainly, I thought, uh, worthwhile as we, we kind of plunged headlong into the numbers part of the Parsha. But you see that that, that digression there, uh, it, it really gives us uh, so much insight, not only to the numbers, but then back again to... Uh, themes in Parshas Korach and beyond. Well, <coughs> I wanted to to devote um, just the final section to talk about uh, the Musafim, the Musaf of Sukkot. Uh, as we know, Shishi and Shavi of Pinchas, they're all the they're all the Maftirs because they're all the Korban Musaf for all the Yom Tovim, beginning with Pesach, Shavuos, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. And uh, as much as we're, we're, we're nowhere near Sukkot yet, but there's a comment that Rashi makes in Parshas Pinchas. It also happens to be that we almost never have uh, a shear on Sukkot because there has to be a Monday between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, and um, that's only one of the four uh, possibilities. So uh, I certainly rejoiced for the uh, opportunity. And of course, what's distinctive about the Musafim of 
Sukkot is the, the Shivim Parim, the 70 bulls, right? There's 70 uh, cows that are offered uh, over the course of the Chag. And the Gemara tells us that those uh, 70 Parim correspond to the 70 nations of the world, the 70 root nations of the world. Okay. And what do we see? So firstly, it's clear from the Gemara that the Jewish people at Onsukkot are offering korbanos on behalf of all of the nations of the world. The Gemara goes so far as to cite Rabbi Yochanan, who says that when the nations of the world, or whoever did it, destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, Woe to them. They have no idea what they, what they were doing, the damage they were doing to themselves. In his words, as long as you have a base Amigdash, the Mizbeach atones for them also. Once they destroyed the base Amigdash, so insult to injury, not only is the sin of destroying it, they are now left without those korbanos. <coughs> so this is, this concept of the 70 parim over the course of Sukkot are for the well-being and, uh, of the, the nations of the world. But what's also important to know, as we do know, is there's another aspect to these uh, 70 cows, which Rashi quotes here. It's also from the Medrash. They are offered in descending, or decreasing more correctly, decreasing numbers. In other words, the seven days of Sukkot and the 70 Purim, but it's not 10 per day. It, it, it starts 13 on the first day, and then goes down to 12, and then down to 11, and until on the seventh day, you have seven. So it's not uniform. It's, a, it's an instantly decreasing number. And what, what does that tell us? Says Rashi, it's like the nations of the world that will decrease and decline. So this is now very interesting to take these two ideas and try and put them together. Because on the one hand, we say that the, the 70... Parim correspond to the nations of the world, and, and they had no idea how beneficial it was for them, and we're, all we have is their well-being. On the other hand, the amount decreases, portending their decrease, and their, to, to, their own descent to, to non-existence. So is it for their benefit, or is it for their destruction? But Mepharshim explained that the, the hopes of the Jewish people, the hopes of the Torah, the hopes of the Jewish people for the nations of the world is for their well-being. But the way the nations of the world conduct themselves isn't always conducive to their well-being. Because as long as they're uh, thirsting for power and, 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 and going after all, all manner of goals which have nothing to do with Hashem's plan for them, so they're not helping themselves. Which means when we talk about the decline of the nations, it's talking about a decline in, in the way that they are living and operating and what their goals are and what, what drives them. That needs to be diminished. But it needs to be diminished in order for them to become on board and part of ultimately Hashem's plan for the world. And that is how we have this unusual combination where we have their benefit in mind, but we talk about them diminishing because there's certain aspects of the way the world is run, the Hamevin Yevin, that, uh, that need to be diminished, uh, if not completely eliminated, before there can be any talk of, of what is actually beneficial for, for the world. What is very interesting is, after all is said and done, 
it's interesting that Sukkot, of all the festivals, Sukkot is the one which has most has the element of the of the global community, as we would call it, of the nations of the world. Why is that so noteworthy? Because of all of the festivals, Sukkot is the one that focuses most on the unique relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. Why do we sit in Sukkot? Because Hashem says, remember, I, I, I sat you in Sukkot, which uh, uh, Rabbi Lezer says, and that's how the Shulchan Aruch rules. It's the Anani HaKavod, the clouds of glory. And what do the clouds of glory represent? The special and unique and distinct connection, relationship that exists between Hashem and the Jewish people. And therefore, how interesting it is that specifically on the Chag, which is there to celebrate the, the Hashem and the Jewish people, that's where you'll find the Jewish people offering korbanos for the nations of the world. I would have thought, leave it for, I don't know, maybe Purim, or, I mean, not that it's a, 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 a non-serious matter, but a, some type of other more inclusive thing. But specifically, when we're dedicated to this relationship, that's when we'll find an expression of, of the nations of the world. But I think, presumably, the answer is Hainuach. That is exactly the point. In other words, part of Hashem's relationship with the Jewish people, and it is a unique relationship, and it is a special relationship. But for the Jewish people's part, that relationship is fulfilled not only by them acting as Jewish people, but also having the welfare of the nations of the world in mind. That's also part of what it means to be the Jewish people. And whether this is expressed in the, the, the words of the Navi or Lagoyim, the famous light to the nations, which is a little bit difficult uh, currently to be a light to the nations because they don't really consider the Jewish people to be particularly enlightened or the source of much uh, moral uh, instruction. So that's obviously a barrier to, to the whole concept of light to the nations. All they, all they can do is, is accuse the Jewish people of every form of darkness. Very difficult to, be, to exist in an illuminating capacity in that way. So in a sense, uh, one could say the nations of the world, and maybe this is what, what we mean, they need to diminish in, in terms of, the, of their current mindset and maybe get some reflectors in order to appreciate what exactly light is and, and, and what illumination is. But either way, and this is something that we speak about even on Rosh Hashanah, I mean, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and, and those are, it's, and it's at the high point of those times when we say we start with the nations of the world, that everyone, the entire world should, should come together in that way. That's not, that's not a contradiction to the uniqueness of the Jewish people, because part of the uniqueness of the Jewish people is to have that in mind, to have it ultimately, if not immediately, if it's not feasible immediately, but ultimately to have it as a goal. And, and that really is the amazing blend of, uh, of, in, of inclusion, and I use the term uh, in, its, in its correct sense of, of inclusion in terms of, of, of worldview, uh, at, at the very same time that you're discussing the uniqueness of the Jewish people. Uh, as is often the case, the, the, the truth is, is, is a blended matter. Um, it's, not, it's not a binary thing in that way. That's the first point with regards to uh, the 70 cows descending. Rashi, however, and I think what we've said so far, the idea of nations of the world and diminishing, I think that is the better known of the two explanations that we're about to discuss. But then Rashi cites a Medrash Tanchuma, which is really fascinating. Again, about the idea that these, the numbers of the Korbanos on Sukkot go down. 
Or I'll give the version of Tanchuma which, where it's a little bit more um, intuitive for us. Limda Torah Derech Eretz. The Torah teaches you, and let's, let's translate Derech Eretz as the way of the world. That if a person has a guest, Achsanai, so how should he treat him? Yom Rishon Yachilenu Patumos. On the first day, feed him uh, fatted fowl, meaning the real good stuff. Lamachar, he's still there, day two. Yachilenu Dogim. Feed him fish. Lamachar, day three. Yachilenu Kavina, cheese. Lamachar, Machilenu Kitnis. Day four, feed him legumes. And Lamachar, Machilo Yerek. And on day five, feed him vegetables. Pochis v'holik. Kapari ha'chag. It's just like the, 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 the cows of the Musaf on Chag. Exactly the same. You see, we start out strong. We start out at 13. But day, day two, it's already 12. And then 11. And then, and then, and then down to 7. And that is the Medrash Tanchuma's explanation. Which is unbelievable. For a couple of reasons. But I think... They could all be summed up by saying, you know, this is not necessarily, it's a reality of the world. It's true. A person can't expect special treatment on an ongoing basis. So day one, there'll be a banner, and they'll be welcome, and we missed you, and, and, and in they come, and they're weighted on hand and foot. Day two, okay, a little bit less. Day three, by the time it's day five, it's barekas, and it's... Uh, it's Crackers. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way of the world. But is that something to be celebrated? Is that something to be enshrined, literally, in the Avot of Carbonus? I would think that once a year we could get ourselves together and try and maintain a standard for all seven days. It's not that hard. And the Torah doesn't even ask us to do this. It's the Torah that says. And, and the, the, the more accurate understanding of the Tanchuma, Limda Torah the Torah is teaching you the way that things should be. But why should it be? Why should there be a decline in standard? Why should every day bring less and less? The Sefer Shiras David, <clears throat> which is from one of the contemporary authors, he lives in, uh, he's a, a Rebbe in the Tel's Yeshiva in Wycliffe, Ohio. Wonderful, wonderful set of sperm. It's not just a safer, it's a set of sperm on, all, on many, many things. He explains. The truth is that going down less and less, steadily decreasing as the days go by, it's the way that things should be. Why? Why should there be a lowering of standards? This is not a lowering of standards. It is actually an elevation. How so? Because you're elevating the guest from guest to Ben Bias, to part of the household. Everyone knows that as much as it's nice, and if you're only there for one day, so you appreciate being, being pampered and being uh, waited on, etc., it's nice. But at a certain point, it gets a little bit uncomfortable because that serves as a barrier. And, and, and I'm sure everyone is familiar with that point where, where you don't want people to do things for you the whole time. And, and when you offer to help, you don't want them to say no the whole time. So it's true 
that on day one, you're expecting stellar hospitality. But on day five or six, really what you're expecting is, is to be asked to, to help clear the table or to do the dishes or something that shows that you're not just a guest, but you're part of, because the only thing better than being a guest and even five-star guest is to be part of the household. It cannot be, it cannot be bought for money. And that's why, if it's ever true that less is more, it's in this Rashi. It's in this Medrash Tanchuma. Whereby, as things decrease, why? Because we don't need to give so much anymore. It can be less because, because you're part of the family. And if there's any doubt, says the Shiraz David, that, that what we're saying is correct, we can, we can demonstrate its veracity from the Halacha. How so? How will the Halacha demonstrate this point? Because, as we know, Sukkot and Pesach, each seven days, we say Halal on every day. But they're not the same. On Sukkot, we say full Halal every day. On Pesach, it's full Halal only on the first day, or in Chutzlar, it's the first two days. But after that point, when you're in Chalamoet, it's half Halal. As we know. But what's behind that? The Gemara discusses this in Maseches Erechim, on Daf Yud. And the Gemara says the reason why Sukkot has Halal Sholem every day and Pesach only on the first day is because for Sukkot every day is a new Yom Tov. Because look at the Karbonos, they're different every day. When it comes to Pesach, the Karbonos are the same every day. Ka'ele. Like this, like the first day you do every day. And therefore, even though, of course, every day is a Yom Tov, but it's not distinct that should then generate a whole Halal. So therefore, for Pesach, it's the first day that's whole Halal. From that point on, it's half Halal. But Sukkot, every day is new. Because every day is unique. How so? It's got different Korbonos, says the Shira Stavit. Yeah, it has different Korbonos. It has less each day. What are we referring to when we say that every day of Sukkot has different korbanos? We're referring to the, to, the, to the Pare HaChag, to these cows that go down less and less. I mean, that's got to be a very optimistic way of looking at, at less. Uh, yesterday you bought 13, and now you bring 12. And we say, oh, it's a new Yom Tov. You should say Halal Shalem. Why? You should probably say less of Halal. You should say less than half of Halal, because it, it keeps on going down. So maybe your Halal should go down. So why does it stay at full Halal every day? But what we see from here is, with the decrease in the number of korbanos, the Yom Tov increases, for the reason that we said. Because here is the Jewish people coming together with Hashem, offering korbanos, and in a sense you have this relationship where it's Hamish, in the, in the sense that it's, it becomes, as, as, the, as the korbanos decrease, you have more of a sense of being at home. And with every day that achieves that, it becomes a greater Yom Tov, and that's reflected in the fact that each uh, each of the uh, days of Sukkot uh, ha- is, is, has, uh, has Halal Shalem. And of course, within the mitzvah of Sukkot itself, whereas, in a sense, in the Korbonus, we're offering to Hashem hospitality, so to speak, Kiviyachal. But of course, in the Sukkah, Hashem is offering hospitality to us. We're going into to His house. And the understanding is you have the synergy whereby through the korbanos every day there's a decrease because we wish to feel more and more at home with Hashem. That's the way we should feel in the sukkah. On the first day you're a guest, but by the time it's finished you should feel at home with everything that the sukkah has to offer, of course, which is the plenty uh, of, of scope to uh, discourse and expand on that uh, closer to the time of sukkahs. But for the purposes of understanding the Rashi, certainly ideas that are well worth our 
um, reflection and our consideration. All the very best. Have a wonderful night and a great week ahead.